curatorial space, institutional space, social and political and ethical and economic space, deep space, outer space, inner space. Space is an issue for everyone, yes, but it has specific resonance for those who make exhibitions and run institutions, and a bit differently for women in general. How we move through it, how we claim it, how we narrate and thematize it, how we fund it, how we labor in it, how we construct it, how we are trapped in it or trap others in it. Women in Space a two-day symposium that thematized the role of scale, space and power in envisioning women in the art system and made reference to the exploratory nature of space travel and all its attendant problematics and projections. Taking the measure of a wide swath of art institutions and spaces run by women curators in recent years, it would seem that the art spaces they activate do not often stress the importance of size, the need for expansion, or the importance of demographic media impact, but rather the necessity of programs that encourage a qualitative interaction between different social spheres as they relate to the exhibitions, public programs, and the continuous presence of the artist community. But the question remains, do women art professionals aim for this outcome or is this the result of the difficult and adaptive process to the very patriarchal conditions in which they, as women in a system created by and for men, are mandated to work? Ideas of intimacy, the smaller scale, and the need for a social space in which to express authentically and in solidarity can seem to clash simultaneously with the larger, louder, seemingly more ambitious view of what women should want. What do all these ideas, projected or not, imply? And how do they manifest in space itself? How have such ideas affected the view of women who claim space, as it were, large or not? I have a story. Um, Because I had, like, uh, before coming to Switzerland, I was one year in El Museo del Barrio, which is like a horrendous institution, which is in New York, in the Fifth Avenue. And this institution was the idea of an artist, which I adore, Rafael Montañez Ortiz. And um, it's dedicated to the, to the diaspora, like the migration of the Caribbean people in uh, America. They are called Latinos. They are not Latin Americans. So the Latin Americans are those which are born in Latin America and then may or may not migrate to the United States. But then it also refers to a history of exploitation and colonialism because, for example, as in the case of the main community that's at the mission and at the core of this museum, the Puerto Rican ones, it's an occupied territory of the United States. And uh, this creates an incredible tension. So as a Payback, they have this institution in New York. I was named chief curator, and that kind of unlashes all the, you know, the Pandora box. I was a colonizer, and I was the one uh, named. I cannot speak in behalf of those communities, and so on and so forth. Whatever the political problems were, the fact is that I learned a lot, and I was in touch with. Um, Rafael, and um, with a series of other people that he has been working with at the time. So 
after six months of not coming to terms with a board and you know people mobbing me and doing all kind of uh, incredible practice to get me out, I decided that I needed to go to Rafael himself and try to ask for advice because he founded the museum. And then, apart from he telling me that I am not going to succeed whatsoever and that I could uh, actually abandon and forget about it, which I did immediately because the advice was really good, um, we were into the, into the conversation of what was El Museo del Barrio. And then he said, there is two radical misunderstandings in when you call something a museum because we needed a museum, because we needed to invocate the biggest possible institutional frame that we could in order to make ourselves able to work. And on the other hand, I tell you what Museo del Barrio was. It was a classroom for eight-year-old kids. That was El Museo del Barrio. The only museum that we could produce was in the classroom of the school. And then he said, tomorrow, we are going to see uh, the photographer that was the teacher of Spanish. The parents asked them to produce a program, if possible, that would kind of uh, help to connect again with the kids because they were migrants from the Spanish-speaking region and they were raised and educated in the Bronx and in the Harlem, but mostly in the Bronx, and, um, and they were speaking in English or in an English context. So uh, the Spanish-speaking teacher, Perla de Leon, um, started uh, taking the camera and then we went to her house. Uh, she's still alive. And then she, uh, like Rafael, asked, please uh, show the curator uh, our school. And then she started putting um, images on the, on the table. And the images were of one barn uh, building after the other. Like all the buildings in the neighborhood were burned down, completely destroyed by fire. And then um, uh, she was saying, well, this is the place uh, where the people were living, and this is the school. The school burned down, no school, like just completely burned. And then I said, but were you teaching there? And they said, yes, yes, we were every day uh, in the school, uh, inside. The spaces could still be used. There was absolutely no heating, no electricity, no nothing. You could do a fire. And then eventually, I think that was 67, then eventually they were rebuilding the school and so on because it was drug dealers and gangs and they were burning systematically the spaces to make the gangs move so that, that people would abandon the buildings and that the gangs would occupy these buildings and so on. So super complex, very incredible story, but also visually incredible because you would, I think that looked like a bombing side of a war. It did not look like a city. It did not look like New York. It would not recollect any memory that you or me would have about New York whatsoever. So then he said, here we needed the museum, you know? And then I asked, what kind of museum? And then he said, well, the problem is that there is a memory in the brain of those parents that is not in the memory of those kids, which are a particular frog that's in the Caribbean area, which is called the coqui. The coqui, when they made, they do coqui, 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 coqui. And this is something that the parents know, and they are here, and the kids didn't. So the Museo del Barrio was what he called a psychosomatic device to bring that noise into the head of the kids. So that was the museum. Of course, I understood that cannot be replicated, and I could never succeed, or anybody, into rehabilitating a museum, which is at the basis of an immense conflict 
of race, of uh, colonial power and disbalance, of uh, displacement, not only in territorial and national borders, but also in terms of uh, nature versus the urban. And then I asked him, what is the future? And then he said, the future, honey, is still the classroom. And I think that there is something into that, bringing so much as possible into, because we are saying care, but I would say, what about the classrooms? What about the closed spaces? What about um, recapitulating our own idea of the dynamics of the, of the public? Because we are saying that we are happy with 12 visitors, but if these 12 visitors would be in a classroom, they are absolutely more than okay. It's perfect for a seminar. I think it's bad for a crowd, but it's, it's fantastic for whatever classroom. So what about, you know, recalibrating even, no, but it's not only scaling down, because if you multiply the classrooms by thousands of millions, so I'm not talking about only one classroom. I'm talking about the possibility of implementing these micro elements by thousand millions. So that's probably what I was saying with the question of poverty. What about meeting in these kind of different situations and claiming that they are museums? I think they were claiming that this is the best. I think they were the most institutional thing ever. And you know, I, I knew it's impossible, we cannot do it now, but I am also under the belief that the, at the very core of the coming back of the right-wing Europe, there is a fact that nobody is expressing, which is when the philosophy classes were erased from the curricula of Europe at the beginning of the 90s. So if you would study what happened when the philosophy were erased and when the faculties of England and also in the curricula of France, Spain, and Germany, philosophy was taken out of the curricula and then you just put it in the chronological order with the race of the right, it's interesting how this overlaps. I think that's enough. something I want to say before when you said like art should start to philosophize about the conditions we are in. Actually, we should make more collaborations with humanities who are, face the same problem because they are not useful, they are not kind of like um, put into a direct practice, but you see what happens when you don't have them. I mean like, yeah, 15, 20 years ago, you would have no political discussion about Europe or anything without having someone from the humanities, be it a sociologist, be involved. And even like the World Bank, they would kind of like ask these people nowadays, no, you ask someone from Google X or you ask someone from Alphabets for these kind of discussions. And I think this is so totally right because we are also co-opting ourselves on the one hand, it's extremely important to work with science. I'm the first one doing it, but I'm also you know, very aware that uh, 10 years ago, if you look at the public programs of many museums, you see that all the philosophers were there. They were not there because they wanted to be there, let's be honest. They were there because they closed their faculties and then they took refuge into the public institutions. And then after that phase, it's even worse. They disappear almost completely. We don't have many of them now um, accompanying us in, in a speculation and in the speculative exercise. And I think that we have been replacing that with other people and those other people perhaps are not so trained or not the able ones to produce speculative scenarios, I think. What about in places like in Latin America that you have like a back to the rights and you did not have philosophy before and after before? I mean like it hasn't existed as a main curriculum. You know, so what I'm saying is that in Europe, perhaps, is a way to understanding this idea of not having something that is about concerning 
some abstract ideas, but in places like Latin America has turned into the right heavily now. And I, and I don't know if, you know, my question is like that, what do you think it is? Because I, I, you know, I didn't hear that you know, perspective, but I wonder. You know, I think we were speaking about this last night, that somehow uh, with the turn the last few years and a kind of this movement globally towards strongmen, towards um, fervent right-wing populism, anti-intellectualism, so forth, the right and the neo-right, they've, they've adopted the mantle of radical transformation and radicalism. And the left is seen now as a kind of conserving force, mm -hmm. as if trying to conserve the progress that was made in the 20th century. It's about like the conservation of certain successes that came about. Without thinking, actually we do, and this goes to this idea of the grand narrative versus the micro-narratives, that there still has to be a larger narrative that people can unite around. So if the left is seeing it as a conservative force, kind of conserving the small gains that were made, which are almost all gone now, then there's nothing to sort of capture people's imagination. And that idea of radicality is like firmly lodged in the right. And I think the art world is completely complicit in this because inside of this, is the cynicism of major museums doing public programs about progressive ideas, about feminism, about solidarity, and then not allowing their uh, workers to unionize, you know, firing women when they're pregnant. Like the way in which these uh, major institutions are run are completely counter to the programs and the values that they're propagating. And everybody knows this. And thus people like Donald Trump and these other strongmen can talk about you know, the fake news or the untruths or, and the cynicism, they would like to propagate that. But what they're identifying is true, that there's like a real cynicism in terms of the way things are funded and then what is said, the language that is used. And that is everywhere in the art world. And I think that's something it's really important for us to address because of course we spoke about this earlier too, that in the art world everybody seems to think, oh, you must have good politics, you must be progressively political. But actually, when you sit down with many people, people are so conservative, and of course they are. You look at the way the art world is funded, you look at the way these institutions run. It's a conservative, it's a blatantly conservative world. So this idea that it's like a progressive politics is just this dress that we need to take off, and we need to be more honest about what is actually going on, and also more systemic about not just having conferences about things, but actually changing the systems in which those things are working. And that's not like a minor or a middle ambition. That's like a large ambition. And you would hope it's not just about like, you know, being the sort of maternal take care of her artists and then they go up, but you want to transform the institutions here and you want to transform the institutions here. But this also requires a very large ambition and a kind of willingness to like speak truth that often means power is going to be sort of allocated away from you. And that's like a, you know, a complicated place to be and in. Yeah, and speaking about like the relationship between the people who are taking care and not taking care, the way people are working together in an art space, uh, abuses of power come as yeah. no surprise very often, as we know. It's, and uh, the relationship between the artist, the curator, the technician, all of this has to be reinvented very often, you know. These hierarchies sometimes are really like, uh, you have the super curator who comes as a star and a diva, it's not possible anymore. You have many situations where you feel that you are completely regressive 
uh, in the way the people are relating to each other. So this should be the first way to work at things. That's why I like to be a director, because I could work at this at the same time, like trying to get a team and to make it sustainable and to, pe to give people agency so they could do some other things. This is a real concern in handling a, an art space. Conditions shape people's behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you're working in exploitive conditions, people are going to be exploiting each other and people are going to be exploited. It's just natural. So it's not just enough to be a good ethical person and to take care of the people around you. You have to change the entire system. Or nothing is going to, at some point, you are going to burn out. And I think that, I think especially what I've seen in my experience in our world, the cynicism comes when the language is so um, progressive and left-wing and hitting all these certain points, but the actual institutions are so exploitive. And the cynicism of the people who work within them, and they know that the face is not matching what the body is actually doing. It's a strange thing because you also, as you said, you, you enjoyed being a director because you actually could have some control over some of the things. I think you need power in order to affect these changes. So you have to have the ambition as well to get to a place. I mean, many times I think also we think of institutions as uh, non-human entities that are very vague and we keep forgetting that institutions are run by people it's like, I mean, we have this saying in Greek, the, the fish stinks from the head. It, it's the leaders of institutions that set the standards for also the next leaders, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's, that's also important. What you said is the absolute truth. I mean, without power, it, it cannot, the change very rarely comes bottom up. It has to be up down, especially in how you prescribe the ethical, caring, institutional? For me, it would be interesting, exactly, is like how institutions work is people, but you know, also you have different type of people. So it's not that, you know, only the director, if it's a, you know, the director can be somebody very uh, patriarchal and machista and everything wrong, and then other people within the institution can have an interesting practice that are trying to change in within. It's difficult, but how you can expose that type of practices without, at the end of the day, it's like the problem of Me Too, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. like, how do you condemn it? And at, Yes, or victimized, or, you know, like how, I, I think for me it would be interesting in, in to understand what are kind of protocols that we should actually follow in order to somehow create a safety nets for, you know, cases like that. And also, I mean, professional, because, I mean, I, then I don't care about, you know, who, who is who, you know? It's not about personal likings or not likings or caring or not caring. It's about certain practices that should be eradicated. But we need protocols to But that. I think that is very, I think now I'm going to just say it fast. This is an article by Coco Fusco in Texte Tsukuns. Uh -huh. And she talks about it in a really great way. She says that the Me Too on the one hand is very successful, but it's based on ideas of uh, moral that are very tied with racial discussions of the United States where you need to behave properly, and if not, you would be shame yeah. in public. So, but the question of shaming or not, it does not necessarily change the structure. Yeah. So the problem with the Me Too at that level, in her uh, opinion, I totally subscribe it, is that you may shame the individuals, the single out, but the structure may remain the same. So, and that's, that's exactly the question. How do you do it that it affects the structure? Because just to remove the rotten um, yeah. apples yeah. Is, yeah. Not, is not a solution. And I think actually, and this is a very, I'm, what I'm saying is very essentialized. Of course, this isn't across the board, but this was my experience is that 
As women, uh, we often do sort of care and nurture, and we get things done. We're very good workers often. And so when you work in these institutions where, where there are unjust practices and exploitation and so forth, um, often women workers are the ones enabling them to go on and to keep things going and to keep the charade going. And if one didn't have them, it would fall apart. Yeah. But every institution has this. Every institution has the group of women who keeps the shit going. While the sort of, you know, the top is like, I don't know what they're doing. But, th but this is also, I think, in the end, it becomes part of the problem because you're allowing institutions to succeed only based on the exploitation and the extra labor of those sort of often at the bottom in a very horizontal way. But I also think that with the Me Too or with this, all these precarity questions, something is happening similar to when you are wanted to talk about something and you make sure that you have another job before you just um, talk about it. And it's like the production of conditions which are new, which are happening, I think. There is also like an awareness inside the art world that certain historical inherited conditions are really not good for anybody or really not, they may even good to sustain themselves for a while, but they definitely are not systemically good enough to represent the future. And uh, there is an incredible effort from the, at least, yeah, I would say public and, and, and private sector to have a conversation and think about what is, uh, possible, but and this needs to run in parallel because this system is incredibly precarious. If you start just by shaming and blaming and so on, you would achieve certain things, but definitely, as we all know it here, it would affect individuals in such a devastating way that it's really unthinkable. And this is something, as you said, we, we need to raise the voice, we need to say it, but it's also we need to be aware that the, there is a punishment that we are going to carry that other people don't carry. I think if you are a, a female a curator with, um, you know, with a depth in a show which is big, you don't get any show anymore and no jobs and nobody has pity you and your friends don't ask friends to help you. But if you are a male, it, it definitely you get jobs and some people pity you for having the bad luck of doing a bad job or things like that. So <laughs> all these kind of structures are there and, and they are paradoxical, but they are absolutely at work and it's true. The mistakes don't count in the same way um, uh, and in the same manner in both in the gender, in the gender division and the art world and everyone is so aware of it and it's very difficult to change. Yes, I, I, I think so. Just to give you a short example, Golden Dawn in Greece, which is a neo-Nazi party that has about 12%, the way that they actually got this 12% from one night to the next was by providing services to pensioners of really going at their home, taking them to the ATM to take their pension out and giving them free food. And it just happened like that. So it's this, this type of, you know, care has also, it's like the other side of the coin that is really scary. But um, yeah, they, they have co-opted a lot of things. I don't know, I'm obviously saying the absolute obvious, but we're still turned in one direction. This of nurturing upwards and getting into bigger institutions and, you know, it's always like the idea of growth towards what? Like in a month we're gonna be in Venice, you know, <laughs> most of us, and we're gonna see the super yachts and we're gonna go, oh. And yet, like, the tip of the art world is still that. You know, as long as institutions are too expensive to get in, as long as, like, to go into the Kunstmuseum with a 
family of four, you know, is your month spending money, we're facing that way. And somehow when you said, okay, why not go, obviously, we're not going to do it because there is a coolness factor involved and we're not going to turn around and face the other way and go that way um, because who's going to even see our colorful shoes or whatever? Who's even going to care? But there is like something, like why are we still facing that way? There is not, at least for artists, at least for performance artists, there's not more money in it. You know, It's not like the more successful you are, the better you're paid. It's not money. It's attention. But do I want attention from from them or no confused. I think that you are totally right that sometimes we tend to to talk that way because it's an easy way to 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 describe situations and relations of power and scale and space and so on but you are completely right and think and and that's what we were talking this morning about you know different systems and different scales actually are paying attention to relevance, like how are today the systems of relevance built? What does influence? I don't think that many of the big institutions have any influence. I think they have importance, but they don't have the same influence. And many other projects of a complete different scale or and a complete different method of working are achieving a relevance and an importance. And, and this much has been um, happening. I do think that. But the attention or the relevance, it's, you know, it's a very small echelon of society that actually has access to that. So my thinking started with how to call people out without putting yourself in danger. And maybe it's to do with that, with like removing yourself a couple of steps. So if you're not in the direct firing line, you know, how can we... I mean, start boycotts. Like, boycott Zabludovic is extremely strong. A lot of people don't work with the Zabludovic Foundation anymore because a variety of reasons, but somebody had to stand up and make the list. We all know who it is, but he works under a synonym. He's not interested. He's got a permanent... Well, no, he doesn't have a permanent position, but he has a teaching position that isn't affected by calling out the Zabludovic Foundation. But now he's managed to, or the group has managed to make it, make it so uncool to work with them that it's like, it takes a lot to accept a solo show as an unrepresented artist. On the one hand, I completely think that it's important to enter into these dynamics of, of talking, addressing, shaming, or whatever, calling, boycotting. And on the other hand, it's no propositional force, I think to spend all the energy on that, I think in the long run, not that it cannot be done, not that it does not need to be done. What I'm, I mean is that it cannot be our future just to single out. So, and that's the difficult balance in between being propositional and then uh, producing and, and doing the space that we want and the space of just uh, activism, which is absolutely and fundamentally necessary as well. So. And, and also, we are so badly trained on it in the art world. We, we, we have no training. I think it's so difficult because the networks, how it works even, um, the fact that people are supposedly to be international, and I don't know what, the, the, this, it's a system that really disconnects and is, uh, is kind of built against solidarity in a, in a strange way. It's not a very, it's not a, it's, it's not a good system, I would say. 
and it's very difficult to talk about it. And it's not the market. It's not that the, you know, it's not the market is the bad and the rest is the good. No, the system in itself is just not calling for, for bonds that uh, that imply this kind of this type of reflection and solidarity and analysis because people look somewhere else. But I really think it has to do with kind of a, a really sinister shift that happened sometime after 2002, three. Because even for the art market, even for the commercial art world, I mean, the older galleries, there was a practice of ethics. There was some comradeship. There was respect amongst peers. And then you started having speculation and all these like weird people going into the market and completely ruining it. And I think for, for, for the other side, the non-commercial side, also the rise of the star curator was a little bit that fucked us over and created even more competition. The fact that now we have much more people coming out from um, art schools and curating courses and much less jobs because of neoliberalism and cuts, like 2010 afterwards, it's the, you know, the, the landscape changed. So the conditions also are much harder than when we started, I don't know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is, this is kind of like maybe maybe something to, to, to consider, to discuss, or maybe for tomorrow, that we are about at a crossing point now of either it becoming even more worse, or somehow with a collectivization of authorship and power, or some, some, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm being just too romantic, we shifted to another way. I mean, we are, I think we are at a crucial point at this very moment of becoming even more neoliberal, even more com competitive, even more individualistic, or another way. No, let's be romantic and decorative. Right. And I have a tale, I have a tale. <laughs> I have a tale, and then we can go home, because I think it's, it, it was, it's romantic and nice and decorative. A very big dinner in a very, very important event, celebrating the work of an artist that is becoming really famous. Two women, one that really made his career, undoubtedly, and the other one that was offering a very important exhibition. Uh, few months after this dinner was taking place. A man goes into the speak, uh, speaks uh, for him and, and praises, does the eulogy of, of this artist and says that actually um, he and a couple of others discover the artist, that he had the pleasure of working with him and, and, and thanks to the exhibition, uh, he became really famous. So one of the women, that woman that kind of made him actually undeniable, uh, stand up and said to the other woman, are you gonna allow this be told to us? And the other one, a director of a quite famous, if not very famous institution, not accustomed to anything like that, the room was filled with the creme de la creme of the art world, around uh, 350 people, was like completely turning from red to green and said like, but, 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 no but, stand up, you, give me the microphone. That man was like looking and so on, was like, took the microphone and said, it may be that you gave an exhibition to that guy once, but I gave five and I was supporting him financially and artistically for at least 10 years. The only writing that was published on him was made with the effort of my team. So stop bullshitting and you come here. The other one following and the retrospective that he is gonna have, that you, Art Forum, is gonna cover and is already in the preview, is made by her. So 
Please, now a big applause for the two of us. <laughs> Is that a real story? It's a totally real story. And it's romantic and caring. So. Participants were Nicola Dietrich, Mareike Dittmar, Raphael Dörig, Fanny Fetzer, Elena Filipovic, Iliana Fukianaki, Ines Goldbach, Sabine Himmelsbach, Claire Hoffmann, Manuela Moscoso, Marie Murassiol, Elfie Turpin and Nadine Wittlesbach. Moderated by Jus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project between the Art Institute at the FHNW Academy of Art and Design in Basel and the Institut Tussouche, a joint venture with Grazina Kulczyk and Art Stations Foundation Switzerland. The Women's Center for Excellence is conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website, institut-kunst.ch. That's institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Instituto Sush is part of Museum Sush, an initiative by Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Grashina Kulczyk. More information can be found at museumsusch.ch. That's www.museumsusch.ch. This podcast was produced by the Art Institute HGK FHNW in Basel and Institut du Susch, Art Station Foundation Switzerland, 2019. Research Assistant Alice Wilke. Editing and Sound Design Elena Ziesa. Recordings Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. We also want to thank der Stiftung für Erforschung für Frauenarbeit for their support.